Well, that was the opening music to The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. And this is the first film of our Bernard Herrmann Film Festival. And we're really going to be talking a lot about the music in the next four movies that we review. Um, this one, though, was released in 1947 and was directed by Joseph Benkowicz and stars Gene Tierney and Rex Harrison. And I watched a 45-minute documentary on Rex Harrison, so I have some, some thoughts on him as well. Excellent, uh, excellent. Yeah. And you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on... Uh, the internet, just go to www.classicmoviereviews.net or in Facebook. You can find us by searching for classicmoviereviews.net and that's all spelled out as a word. And in Apple Podcasts, just search for Classic Movie Reviews and you'll find us uh, as one of the top podcasts there. Just look for the one with the black and white logo that has a film reel on it. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm back in North Bend today after being gone on vacation in Asia. Went to Vietnam and Japan and toured around, and I have to say that was an amazing trip. And as with all good trips, it's great to go, but it's also great to come back home, and I'm super happy to be here talking with you today, Dad. Oh, it's great to have you back, and uh, this is uh, Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, and um I'm looking forward to seeing you next week when we come up for board meetings and whatnot. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing all the kids, too, because they're about to depart for college. So it'll be good to yeah. see them. A couple uh, of kids going off to college. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, I'm so glad that when you went to uh, Vietnam and Japan, you had a blog on your trip because I followed that every day. I look forward to seeing where you were. And I especially like the 7,223 pictures of food. <laughs> yeah. Man, oh, man, I, there's a lot of food. Well, there's just so much good food. I mean, <laughs> yes. You'll, be having, you'll have to join Weight Watchers. Good. For, yeah, I definitely uh, <laughs> put on some weight on that trip. Uh, it was offset, though, by walking about 10 miles every day. Yeah, it looked like, it looked like that. A ton of walking. Lots of temples in Japan. Um, I thought about our Zatoichi films that we've watched, and uh, yeah, not not really the same kind of scenery in in real life as in those movies, obviously. But it was sir, it was it was certainly beautiful and really, you know, a lot to take in. A lot lot different than the United States, that's for sure. I sure enjoyed it. I'm so glad you were all able to go together with the family. So we're back to. Uh, our 124th podcast of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Yes, and just to be clear, it's our 124th podcast, not our 124th podcast of this movie. Because that would be a lot. That'd be a really... <laughs> Is that what really I said? That's what it sounded like you said. That'd be a real deep dive on a, on a film. <laughs> Wait, we did, we did 124 hours on the Man, oh, man. Uh, that, would, that, that might be more than even I could take. So anyway, this is our 124th podcast. Uh, a little bit about the film. It was released in June of 1947 by 20th Century Fox. And uh, the director, Joseph Mankiewicz, was, had an excellent career. I think his great-nephew, I'm not 
quite sure I've got that right, is the uh, current lead host for Turner Classic Movies, Ben no, I was going to ask you about that because I, I thought they were probably related. Yeah, I, yeah they, uh, I think uh, Ben Mankiewicz's dad was Joseph Mankiewicz's brother. I think that may be. Mm. I'm not very good at genealogy, but anyway, there's a connection there. Plus the Mankiewicz family, there were a lot of other uh, members that were uh, in entertainment. But anyway, Joseph had a long and productive career. He did uh, many, many movies, directed, I think, 22, 23, and wrote about 39. He won Academy Awards for a letter to three wives from 1949 and a favorite of mine, the 1950 film All About Eve. And we've we've reviewed some of his movies before. One that came to mind is, remember No Way Out from 1950? Yeah. With Sidney Poitier. That was one that that we reviewed that he did. He was just excellent. So he, it was in capable hands, this movie was, when uh, he was selected as the director. Yeah, and uh, as I mentioned, I watched the uh, sort of special features on the DVD, and one of them was all about Rex Harrison. And I thought he was such a perfect person to play the ghost in this movie he just really pulled off like a crusty old sea captain <laughs> he really does who had a heart of gold in the end um but he let he led a real sort of roller coaster life i thought he started in entertainment really early on the stage and really young in, in england and then had an opportunity to come and sign a contract to make films in the united states and it was kind of interesting because it sounded like at that time, I think it was 20th Century Fox had brought him over on contract and they had brought over several actors and actresses from England and were doing kind of this promotional tour of, of introducing these uh, English actors to the American audiences. And they had some little couple minute vignettes of, of introducing him and he has he was married five times he was a real ladies man apparently uh according to this documentary and kind of seemed like he was not very well liked by people that worked with him oh is that right oh okay <laughs> yeah but the consensus from the folks in the interviews was that he was just so good that you kind of put up with some of his idiosyncrasies and and demands on the set yeah, he was actually knighted by the Queen when he was, I think, 81. For me, he he epitomizes the upper-class, sophisticated English gentleman in a lot of movies. But he's got so much more depth to his talent that it, it ranges over a great deal. He was in films from 1930 until 1982. Yeah. And made and a lot made, of big movies. Yeah, and was in some real... Um, very very popular movies like Cleopatra, um, My Fair Lady, My Fair Lady, which he had starred in on Broadway and then brought to the the, the screen. Um, Doctor Doolittle. Oh yes, he talks to the animals. Yeah. I was watching this uh, documentary and the couple of my kids were in the background. They said, "Wait a minute, you mean Eddie Murphy wasn't the original Doctor Doolittle?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, it was, he was not. He was preceded by Rex Harrison. Well, you know, one of my favorite movies of his is kind of an obscure one from 1940, Night Train to Munich. Yeah, that one looks super it's interesting. A, didn't, didn't, he plays a British agent 
trying to uh, foil a plot by the uh, either the Nazi Party or the Gestapo. Uh, so that might be one we'd want to look at. He made 45 films in the U.S. Long career. Wow. Yeah. And I had a, a it's, it shows you how sometimes the research can vary. I had uh, found that he was married six times. Oh, was it six times? So I don't know which one is accurate, but five or six, that's, that's a pretty good uh, <laughs> pace on, on marriages, I tell you. So he may not yeah. have been uh, the most easy person to live with. I don't know. It always fascinates me when you've you, you've got folks like this that are, you know, really well known, famous people, and they have a certain persona in their films, and they bring, like you said, you kind of think of him as this upper class English gentleman because of his movies, but he really came from a working class background, and and sort of uh, through his films and stage presence cultivated that that image but just really in his personal life was had a lot of struggles and challenges um but just interesting it's always interesting to me to le learn more about the actual person because it's so often much different than what you think of them as in in their films that's so true uh, i just i just recalled another movie that he was in with of all people doris day and it's called oh. midnight lace and Rex is the husband of Doris, and he's scheming to uh, end her life so that he can get some of her inheritance. It's uh, from the is that the one where he's is that the, is that the one where he's a a, a conductor, a music conductor? Um, oh, I'm not sure. He did. I, I know the one you're speaking about. I'm not sure that's the same one. But anyway, I just think the teaming of Doris Day with Rex Harrison is quite unusual. If that's the movie that I'm thinking of, it it, it was really ill-timed in terms of when it was released because he had been in a relationship with this actress who was in a lot of movies and, and apparently was, I don't know, I just the, the impression I had that maybe she was suffering from some mental illness and also I think maybe had some issues with being a female in Hollywood at the time and, and she ended up committing suicide and... He oh was my. the one who he was the one who found her body the next day because she they had been in this relationship. It was a real scandal, and there was a lot of press about it. And and some of the Hollywood writers at the time were saying that he's done in Hollywood and don't you know he's he's not going to ever have another successful movie. And then the next movie that came out was this one where he was this husband who was scheming to kill his <laughs> wife, and so it was just like. Uh, I was just kind of that was a tragic part of his of his story, and I think it uh, really kind of affected him. Well, we could we could probably do a couple of uh, podcasts just on Rex Harrison. Another person, yeah, another person that's interesting is Jean Tierney. Oh, she was so good in this movie. I just oh man, I I fell in love with her in her role in the first scene when she was uh, going at it with her in laws. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she. She was very strong. Yeah, I loved her character. Lucy, Lucy Muir. Um, she was in a lot of big movies. I, you know, I can't remember now. Have we done a podcast on Laura, the movie from 1944? No, but I think we should. We should. She's, she's in that with uh, Dana Andrews. Excellent. And then she, she's in one called Leave Her to Heaven from 1945, that was, and she was nominated for an Academy Award. 
and she's got some issues there with some people and her own her own uh I don't know. She was unable to control her jealousy and and got into <laughs> murder and also. But anyway, oh, um, she was in a, almost forty films over a long career. I thought it was really cool in this film how they aged her in in yes in yes kind of the progression of the film because it goes from when she's I don't know in her twenties, uh, maybe late twenties to when she, well late later in life um and yeah i thought she did a good job of of acting to portray her as an older woman and then we have george saunders who made must he he, he must have made over a hundred films he and he he plays miles fairly or yeah. or uncle uh, uncle netty <laughs> i think it was his character and he was the uh smarmy uh duplicitous guy that was had a weakness for women even though he was married with children a scoundrel i feel like he got a little bit typecast at least in my mind as (laughs) as being kind of that smarmy scoundrel kind of a character he he won an academy award for all about eve and uh back in the 30s and 40s he played the detective the saint and then the falcon and uh, so he made a ton of those programmer movies way back before World War II. Just looking at his IMDb page, geez, he made a ton of movies too. <laughs> oh, he did. He really did. Um, yeah. And he was in films for 40 years. And he always played, not always, but generally played kind of a scheming, not trustworthy bad guy. He always, yeah. not always, because he was the saint and the falcon, but boy, he was an excellent actor. But then the best part of this whole film is Bernard Herrmann's music. Right, so that's oh, the whole point man. of this podcast. We've spent, I don't know, 15 minutes on kind of the cast and the director there. Um, but the music is just absolutely excellent and really is supportive of the of the storyline you know and we've talked quite a bit about how music can either add to or detract from the impact of the drama and the plot and in this case uh it absolutely supports the the film and we had a uh, listener send us a link to a website that goes into a lot of detail about the music in this film and how it's very different than most other Bernard Herrmann scores because it uses the Liet motifs, which is really popular in later films like in Star Wars and Jaws. There's this idea that different characters have different musical motifs. In this film, like Lucy has a theme... Ghost has a theme. Mm-hmm. 
I'll just read. I'm just going to read here just a few sentences of the opening, which is called the Prelude, which is also kind of unique because it they don't play the fanfare of the 20th Century Fox logo. They actually just go right into this Prelude. And so here I'm going to read from this page. It says, Prelude is a beautiful score highlight which opens the film and features presentations of Herman's primary themes. The restless long line C theme ascends from deep orchestral depths. carry the 20th Century Fox logo and initial role of the opening credits. We transition at 22 uh, seconds with the film's title to Lucy's theme, which in turn transitions at 37 seconds to the wondrous cantilena of the Gull Cottage theme. As the credits continue to roll against the backdrop of the English coast, her theme returns as we have a panorama of London at the turn of the century. As we descend to the streets at a minute and 23 seconds, portentous tolling bells and strings mysterioso carry us slowly to the house of Lucy's in-laws. This opening sequence was perfectly conceived and beautifully sets the tone of our story. Boy, that is so true. When I watched it the second time, and I kept that in mind, and I was also reading this page as I kind of watched it, it really, it really rang true. Like you can pick out these little Liet motifs in that prelude, and then as you kind of are introduced to different characters, you get these different musical highlights. It, it's beautiful that way. Uh, the the ones that I would add to that is when she and the real estate person go to the house. Oh yes, <clears throat> and she's all in black. Yeah, and the music is is kind of portelling what is going on in the house. It's very dramatic and a, and a little bit scary.
There's even like little tiny one or two second notes that are yeah. hit. When she comes into that real estate office, it, it, it just touches on a couple notes from that theme that then is coming in later when they're driving out to the, the Gull Cottage. And the favorite one for me in the whole film, I think, and there's so many, I mean, I hate to single one out, but when George Saunders' character is sitting on the front lawn painting mm-hmm. and uh, Lucy is there dressed in white, like almost a- angelic in the clothes that she's wearing. And then she turns around and walks away down a path. The music that accompanies that whole scene and her walking away. A++ in my mind. It's amazing. Cool that you mentioned like that she's wearing a white dress there because at the beginning of the film almost I guess up until the part actually that scene maybe she's she's in dark colors and she's wearing black and she's sort of in she's still in mourning because her husband had passed away a year earlier and she's this opening scene that I just talked about with the prelude where she's confronting her in-laws She's basically telling them that she's not going to live with them anymore and she doesn't their lives don't mix and she's she's got some great lines in that opening scene. And now my mind is made up. Oh, Lucy. I never good. heard of such a thing. Oh, Lucy, Lucy. Please don't make it more difficult. I know you've tried to be generous and kind, but it simply won't work my living here. Eva, speak to her. Are you serious, Lucy? Yes, Eva, I am. And poor Edwin, barely cold in his grave. He's been dead almost a year now. Still, you might have some consideration for your husband's memory. I don't see what Edwin's got to do with this. I'm not leaving him. I'm leaving you. Oh, after all we've tried to do for her. You mustn't think I'm not grateful. You've both been so very kind to me. But I'm not really a member of the family, except for marrying your son. And and now he's gone... I have my own life to live, and and you have yours. And they simply won't mix. I've never had a life of my own. It's been Edwin's life and yours and Eva's. Never my own. (laughs) Stop sniveling, Mother. If she's determined to make a fool of herself, there's nothing we can do about it. But what will I have to remind me of poor Edwin? Lucy, have you considered Anna? Yes, Eva, I have. And you're willing to take the responsibility for what might become of her. She's my daughter, Eva. And what do you mean by that? Only what I said. You're insinuating that I interfere with Anna. Don't deny it, Lucy. Don't deny it, I say. I'm not denying it, Eva. Please, can't we discuss this without quarreling? I'm sure I don't know how you'll manage, Lucy. You haven't any money. I have the income from Edwin's gold shares, and Anna and I can live quite cheaply with Martha. Do you mean you're taking Martha Huggins? And why not? She was with me before I came to live with you. Of all the ungrateful... Please, Eva. I'm sorry, but I've made up my mind. But where, Lucy? Where can you go? The seaside, I think. I've always wanted to live by the sea. Oh, Bertie. 
Well, that's all I have to say. I should think it's quite enough. Apparently, there's nothing we can do about it. But when you realize your mistake and try to come crawling back to us, don't expect any encouragement from me. I won't, Eva. And she is going to go live on the coast, and she's taking her daughter, who's played by Natalie Wood, which was, that may be her first film, and her housekeeper, they're going to go live out on the coast. And then so they go out on this train ride to the coast, and they meet this real estate agent who is super funny character, I thought, because yeah. he, he does not want to show her a gull cottage. Oh, I am sorry. It's quite all right. Are you Mr. Itchen? Mr. Itchen passed on 30 years ago. May he rest in peace. Mr. Bowles. Likewise. Oh, then you're Mr. Coon. Junior. Of course, you answered my letter. Oh, uh, please eat it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm Mrs. Muir. Mrs. Muir, of course. You were desirous of renting a house. Yes. Yes. Well, I've selected several prospects suitable to a young lady in uh, bereaved circumstances. Bowles, Sir John. Seaside villa, three beds, two reset, complete offices, companies, gas and water, ideally sits near bus stops, modern drains, private garden, £120, £10 deposit. I'm afraid that's a little too expensive. Right. Laburnum Mount, first class residential suite, four bed, one reset, sun parlour, offices, companies, gas and water, beautifully planted, short walk this from... This bo- uh, Gull Cottage. What was that, madam? This house, Gull Cottage. It's exactly the sort of place I'm looking for. Gull Cottage? Oh, no, no. That wouldn't suit you at all. Laburnum Mount. First class residential street. Four bed, one recept, sun parlor, offices. Company's guest and water. And only 52 pounds. That's very little for a furnished house. It's a ridiculous price. I suppose there's something wrong. Is it the drains? When Itchin, Bowles and Coombe put up a house for rent, you may be sure there is nothing wrong with the drains. Then why shouldn't it suit me? Oh, my dear young lady, you must allow me to be the judge of that. <laughs> now, where were we? Oh, yes. Laburnum Mount. Beautifully planted short walk from... But if pres- I'm going to live in the house, I should be the judge. You'll only waste your time. But it's my time. And we don't really find out why until they actually go out there and we find out that it's haunted. Yeah, that's and- right. So, and then the scene that you're talking about, she had just been down at the beach kind of uh, swimming in the ocean and then she's coming up and... This uh, character played by George Sanders, Miles Fairley, had been painting her. A life is just one coincidence after another, isn't it? Thank you for returning my handkerchief, Mr. I feel rather ashamed about having taken it. You should be. Only as a writer, of course. It's much too obvious a device. And in questionable taste. It's very necessary. I don't. I wanted to have something of you until I saw you again. You're quite accomplished, aren't you? I should think being Uncle Neddy would satisfy anyone. No, I also paint. Under the name of Renoir. Oh, you're such a fool. It's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. And what, if anything, do you do as Miles Fairley? Play the fool, generally. Specifically, I behave quite idiotically towards a certain young lady that I fell in love with while passing on a stair. Mr. Fairley, please. I have no illusions about my conduct. Am I being unforgivably offensive, Lucy? Lucy. That's your name. It's been so long since anyone called me that. No, you've done nothing really unforgivable. It's it's just that I'm not... That no one is... Come and take a look at my canvas. Why, it's me. You've been painting me. 
You've been watching me bathe. But always from a respectful distance. Not too bad, is it? I think it's very flattering, Rick. thousand Renoirs. That was unforgivable, wasn't it? But I shall not go away even if you sent me. And I shall see you again even if you forbid it. I'm sure I have no control over where you go or, or what you do. Then you won't forbid it. And has kind of been courting her in a way, but then after, and then after that scene, she's in much lighter colors, and she's wearing much lighter colors. But then, and then in the third act of the film, she's back to kind of more muted tones. And I think that the the costuming, along absolutely with the music, really carries along with the plot and and kind of gives you those hints about what's going on in her head. Oh, it's perfectly. Uh integrated that way and i should mention that the uh, cinematographer charles lang for the film was uh received an academy award nomination he didn't win the award but he was nominated for a cinematography on the movie and it's everything about this movie is is exceptional led by bernard herman yeah bernard herman was nominated for an Academy of, well, several different Academy Awards, but he only won one award. He, he uh, did the music scores for 52 films, and uh, just a random sample would include Citizen Kane. The Earth Stood Still. by Northwest. Psycho. Vertigo. Vertigo. 
did seven Hitchcock films. And when we review Garden of Eden for our next podcast, the mm-hmm. contrast between the music in that film and this film will be uh, startling. Because it, it in that film it's supporting an entire different different uh, script and style. It's more of a western scene in Mexico. So, the man was a genius. Yeah, I can't wait. He he was nominated for Citizen Kane, and he won for All That Money Can Buy for Best Music and Scoring of a Dramatic Picture. nominated for best music and scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture for Anna and the King of Siam. All, that also starred Rex Harrison and he played the King of Siam. Yeah. yeah. And then he was nominated for Taxi Driver in 1976 posthumously and also Obsession in 1976. Very well recognized. He also was nominated for a Golden Globe for The Day the Earth Stood Still, which Man, I love that oh, musical score and that's, so again, much. Again, that's a that's a, a completely different score to this one or any of the others that he did. And the score for North by Northwest, oh, my. Yeah. And his career spanned, uh, what, four decades, five decades, something like that? Something like yeah. that. Yeah, and he was, he was also innovative in electronic music. So uh, in the day the earth stood still, he... It was one of the first or the first time that the theremin was used in a in elect, in electronic scoring of a film, and he continued to be interested and stay involved in electronic music development over the next couple decades. Plus, he, uh, we can't forget that he did uh, quite a bit of music scoring for television. He was a busy person. Well, do you want to spend a few minutes on the actual film? or? Yeah, so we kind of got up to the point where she's going to rent this house that is haunted, and she doesn't care that it's haunted, and she's kind of maybe convinced herself that it's not haunted. <laughs> sure would come. I, I didn't want to show it to you, but oh, no, no, you had to see it. How perfectly fascinating. Fascinating? I suppose it's fascinating that this house is driving me to drink. To drink. 
four times I'd rented it. And four times the tenants have left after the very first night. The owner's in Australia, Captain Greg's cousin. I've written to him, cabled him, begging him to release me. But he only replies, rely on you. Well, I don't want to be relied on. I never want to see this house again. I wish Captain Greg had lived to be a hundred. I wish he'd never been born. I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Coombe. Hmm, well, at least you know now why it won't suit you. Yes, I, I suppose so. Why does he haunt? Was he murdered? No, he committed suicide. Oh, I wonder why. To save someone the trouble of assassinating him, no doubt. Come, we'll go to Laburnum Mountain. Mrs. Muir. Mrs. Muir, if you please. You'll probably think it very silly of me, Mr. Coombe. But I've decided to take Gull Cottage after all. I mean, if everyone rushes off at the slightest sound, of course the house gets a bad name. But it's too ridiculous, really, in the 20th century to believe in apparitions and all that medieval nonsense. But you, you heard him laugh. I, I heard what might have been a laugh. What might have been the wind roaring down the chimney? If I may say so, Miss Muir, little sticks. I want Gull Cottage. In my opinion, you are the most obstinate young woman I have ever met. Thank you, Mr. Coombe. I've always wanted to be considered obstinate. They move in, and not too soon after, she discovers that, yes, indeed, it is haunted, because the captain reveals himself to her. Why do you haunt? Because I have plans for my house which don't include a pack of strangers barging in and making themselves at home. Then you were trying to frighten me away. Did you call that trying? <laughs> I'd barely started. Now, that was enough for all the others. They didn't want any part of it, let me tell you. Didn't even stop to weigh anchor. They just cut their cables and ran. I think it's very mean of you frightening people. Childish, too. Well, in your case, I'm prepared to admit I charted the course with regret. You're not a bad-looking woman, you know. Especially when you're asleep. So, you were in my room this afternoon. My room, madam. I thought I dreamed it. Did you open the window to frighten me? I opened the window because I didn't want another accident with a blasted gas. Women are such fools. You, of all people, should not have brought that up. I wouldn't call that remark in the best of taste. But I'm sure it was very kind of you, but I'm quite capable of taking care of myself. And is quite grumpy and trying to get her to leave and has successfully had four, driven four other people out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think uh, the real estate person said they didn't even stay one night. They didn't even stay one night, yeah. So he's obviously enjoys his <laughs> solitude and also scaring people. <laughs> Uh, but you kind of, he, he, she, she stands up to him just like she stood up to her in-laws and he, he seems to kind of like respect that and see something in her that he likes. And so kind of turns, turns on some of the sea captain charm, I would say, yes. and starts kind of <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he, I, talking about all of his exploits with all these different women that he's had. I like, I like that part and the fact that he could just mysteriously appear and disappear that was well done. Yeah. And I, I there was a neat little touch. Um, there's quite a few like callbacks in the film. So uh, we find out that uh, she Lucy doesn't want uh, the ghost to reveal himself to, his, to her daughter because she, her daughter's too young to see ghosts. And it's just we don't want to scare her and, and traumatize her. 
and he promises, "Oh no, I won't, I won't, I won't scare her. I won't, I won't reveal myself to her." <laughs> but then later, later in the film, we discover that no, he did, and that actually they became best friends. Like, yes. So yes. Natalie Wood's character is Anna Muir, and Anna comes back later uh, from college and brings home this uh, boyfriend that that she's got, and they start talking about this early time in the cottage and that the ghost had haunted the cottage for about a year and then just sort of disappeared. And they were both so happy that they both had this experience with the ghost. Oh, mommy, you don't suppose he really haunted us? No, darling, things like that can't happen. It was only a dream. The same dream for both of us? Perhaps I set you off by telling you about my dreams. Little girls are very impressionable. I don't remember your telling me. Oh, tell me now. I'd love to hear about them, but I can't remember them very well. Just bits and pieces. A phrase here and there, a look. And I think I dreamed most of my book, Blood and Swash. I must have. I never could have thought of it. All these years I... I've tried to remember, but I can't. Do you know what I think? I think you fell in love with him, too. I did nothing of this sort. Oh, I wouldn't blame you if you had. When did you stop seeing him? After about a year. I dreamed we quarreled. It was about a man. Uncle Neddy. Anna, did you know that Miles and I... I used to pray you wouldn't marry him. And you were so right. I saw him about five years ago at a dinner party. He was bald and fat, and he drank too much, and then he cried. It seems his wife finally had enough and took the children away. You never can tell, can you? Once I thought I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. Oh, perhaps he did exist. The captain. Perhaps he did come back and talk to us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he had? Then you'd have something, you know what I mean, to look back on with happiness. No, darling, he never existed. We made him up, you and I. I just wasn't intended to have that kind of happiness, and I haven't missed it, really, I haven't. Oh, I've been lonely at times, but there have been compensations. You, and now Bill, and dear Martha. We sit and chatter like a pair of parrots. <coughs> the other thing that, and, and Nancy, uh, we watched this together. She pointed out yesterday uh, for the podcast that she was impressed with the uh, lifelong friendship between Lucy and uh, Edna Best character, Martha Higgin, Huggin, who was the maid, housemaid. How they they were friends for decades, and and she stayed with her the whole time. She wasn't afraid of things either. So I I, I wanted to mention that because uh, it really is a part of the movie that kind of gets lost to to me as I watch the ghost interacting uh, with Lucy. Well, I think the character development of, of those main characters like uh, Lucy and, and Captain Greg, who's the ghost, and Martha and Anna are it's just you just really feel like they're a family, you know. They really 
have these really neat interactions that reinforce how much they love each other and and there's kind of there's kind of this banter between Martha and Lucy where uh, Lucy's like doesn't want to be taken care of, but at the same time appreciates Martha taking care of her. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know? Oh well, you know, and, and then it kind of segues to where the uh, the captain, Captain Daniel, convinces Lucy to write his life story. Yeah, because what we find out is that the money that was supporting Lucy in being able to stay at this house has run out because it was like from a gold mine and the gold mine has dried up. And so the in-laws come back out to the house and, and are trying to convince Lucy to move back to London. And Lucy doesn't want to do that, but she's also like, well, I don't know. I don't have any money now. Maybe I'd better move back to London. And, and the ghost, uh, Captain Greg is like, no, you can't do that. We'll figure it out. And he basically ushers the two women out of the house. And, and... That was a great scene. <laughs> he, he helped them leave quick, quickly. Yeah, and it, and it must have been really weird for them because obviously they couldn't see him. But he grabs them by the arm and basically just takes them out of the house and slams the door behind them. Oh, those and that's yeah that kind of that kind of transitions to I think the second um, act of the film where now they're collaborating together to write this book and and they finish the book and then she takes it off to London to a publisher where she meets George Sanders character Miles Fairley and then they start up a relationship and and he comes out to the house to visit and is courting her and she's just so happy and she realizes that he's maybe not the most uh, upstanding guy but at the same time he's nice to her and and you know is is well off and has a career and she needs somebody in her life hello martha hello like my picture no <laughs> that's honest anyway it's indecent that's what it is in painting you in your bathing costume like you was a i don't know what oh come on this is the 20th century. We must rid ourselves of the old fetishes and taboos. <laughs> Learnt a lot of new words, ain't you? We're never too old to learn. No, nor to make fools of ourselves either, Uncle Nettie. All right, my girl. Let's have it. What's he up to? What's he want with you? Well, I'd rather think he's going to ask me to marry him than you be willing to. I might. Why shouldn't I? Because he ain't good enough for you, that's why not. He's the kind of man no decent woman would associate with. Martha, what right have you to talk like that? Well, I got a right to my own feelings, and, and I got a feeling about him. How dare you? I'm sorry, It's just that I've been so worried about you lately. No, Martha. There's nothing to worry about. I know he isn't perfect. Perhaps he's conceited and erratic. Even childish. But he's real. Real? I thought I was impervious to emotion. A respectable widow woman with a growing child and a hide like a rhinoceros. But I'm not. I need companionship and laughter and all the things a woman needs. And I thought that was so poignant because I think in a way she's almost compromising... She knows that he's maybe not the best fit for her, but at the same time, she wants to have somebody in her life that she can share her life with. 
And I, and I think that makes it all the more kind of heartbreaking when we find out that he's actually married and has kids and, and that his wife knows that he's doing yeah. this and, and it's just sort of like okay with that. So there's this whole element in the film of, of, of like compromising and living a life that maybe isn't one that you would want to live, but you're living it because it's the best that you can you can put together you know yeah, his wife seemed to to uh have done this same thing before <clears throat> where somebody showed up <clears throat> that was a girlfriend of of miles and then we sort of enter the, i think the third act and it's it's where as i'm talking about it i'm kind of realizing that that lucy decides that she doesn't want to compromise she's very strong willed and and very much clear on what she wants in her life and i think at at some point when she was being courted by Miles, she was thinking, well, I'll, I will compromise in this case. But then that fell apart. And then I think after that, she's like, no, I'm not going to compromise. It'd be better to just live my life alone. And so she lives the rest of her life, not alone. I mean, she's with Martha and, and she's got Anna, but Anna's kind of growing up and going off to college. And, and uh, so Martha and Lucy are, are together in the house and they're growing older together. And it just, it, at this point in the film, I just felt a real sense of sort of melancholy and sentimentality. Yes, the music reflected that also. His music supported that melancholy. Yeah, I just, it just really hit emotionally about how to think about her life. And there's some great scenes. And, and again, the cinematography is really well done here that portray the passage of time with the crashing waves and the beach that they had spent their youth at and Anna had gone down there swimming and, and there was a gentleman that had carved her name into one of the kind of piers right on the beach. And, and the, the wood of that carving is slowly being whittled away by the waves. And it's just a really interesting and, and good, cool way to, to portray that passage of time. Perfect segue to the, to the, uh, closing chapter i wanted to loop back to just one point about the book that she uh writes about daniel craig when she takes it to the publisher mr sproul the way she was received it was very telling about how women were viewed at that time because he dismissed the fact that it was a book that had any consequence or or would be interesting come in fairly come in your new book is terrible the most awful trash I've had in my desk since. Who are you? I, I'm, that is. Who let you in? Why, the gentleman outside said it was all right. Oh, he did, did he? Well, it isn't all right. And I'll trouble you to take yourself elsewhere. Oh, please, Mr. Sproul. I simply had to get in to see you. I, I have a manuscript. Of course you have. 20 million discontented females in the British Isles and every blessed one of them is writing a novel. But I... Now, don't tell me what's in it, I know. Bless my soul, madam. I've got to publish this bilge in order to stay in business, but I don't have to read it. No, madam, I do not. And now, if you'll pardon me, I'm busy. Come back here, you blasted grampas. You're such a nice-looking woman, too. Oh, I, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Sproul. I, I didn't mean to say that. But you're all wrong about the book. It isn't what you think at all. It's, it's a biography. It's, 
It's the unvarnished record of a sailor's life. A sailor's life? I ask your pardon, madam, but what do you know about sailors? Oh, a great deal, believe me. Mm. Unvarnished, you say? Well, perhaps I have time for a few pages of that. And even Miles Farley made a couple of comments about it. And then when she returns after Mr. Sproul has read it, he's, he, he's so animated about how well it's written. How did she do this? How did she know about this? He wanted to meet the man that it was about. That whole thing was an interesting change of mindset for the publisher. Well, and I don't think it's any coincidence that Miles is also an author but of like, but also, but but his books are just sort of these fluffy kids' books. What was the uncle? What was his uncle Ned Nettie? I think uncle it was. Nettie, yes. And so that was his pen name. And so to your point here, Lucy has written this really well put together, sort of dramatic, interesting story of the sea captain's life, and is just summarily dismissed because she's a woman. And then we've got this real smarmy sort of like, I don't know, he's just kind of a loser, really, a uh, guy who's writing these. And th- th- not to say that there's anything wrong with writing children's books. It's just that to just be summarily dismissed because uh, you're a woman when you've written this this novel and by a, by a guy who writes children's books. And I just thought that that's a really interesting contrast, you know, and it's not by coincidence that he's sort oh. of written off as Uncle Nettie. Totally. Even the publisher was dismissive of uh, Uncle Nettie's books as being sort of the same thing over and over again, and couldn't he do something a little more interesting? They had this bipo- inter, you know, the interaction about that. Yeah. So, yeah, so. Miles, Miles turns out to be not a nice guy. Well, and, and just to, uh, one more thing on this topic of, of Lucy being a writer and, and being a woman. Uh, she's She starts off by sort of transcribing what Captain Greg is telling her, and then they have this really neat interaction where she says to him, you know what? I can't write this, this way. This isn't, this is the grammar's not right. The words aren't right. And he says, well, blast it all. Write it however you want. Just let me (laughs) just get, get down my story, you know? And, and, and so I, I, I think that's important because otherwise we're just going to be thinking that Lucy actually didn't write it. She just transcribed it. But in fact, she actually did write it from, listening to him talk yes. about his life so that's important and and uh, apparently it was a huge huge popular success because she it set her up for life there at the uh at the remote ca- uh, house yeah i wonder if she ever wrote any other books um it doesn't really ever say but uh, she she does allude to the fact that she liked to write as a younger person so she she definitely likes writing but she she made enough yeah. from this one book to basically live at Gull Cottage for the rest of her life, yeah. And and near the end of her life, or at the end of her life, she's still best friends and close to Martha. I thought the ending was so touching. Yeah, it really oh. was. It really, really, it really was. It was. It was sad and it was poignant and it was at the same time redeeming and and uplifting it was just a lot of different things all at the same time were you surprised when uh daniel shows up to take her away that she immediately changes back to her youth in appearance i i forgot about that 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 was i love that i think that made sense to me i think 
Captain Greg says something like, time doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Good afternoon. What have you done with me monkey puzzle tree? I expected to chop the firewood by now. Hang it all, madam. I, I planted that tree with my own two hands. Why? Because I wanted a monkey puzzle tree in my garden. Think how much prettier a bed of roses would look there. I hate roses. I hope the whole blasted bed dies of blight. I wish you wouldn't swear. It's so ugly. If you think that's ugly, it's a good thing you can't read me thoughts. You seem to be very earthly for a spirit. And you, madam, are enough to make a saint take to blasphemy. Blasted women. Always make trouble when you allow one aboard. Captain Gregg, if you insist on haunting me, you might at least be more agreeable about it. Why should I be agreeable? Well, as long as we're living... I mean, if we're to be thrown together so much... Life's too short to be forever barking at each other. Your life may be short, madam. I have an unlimited time at my disposal. I think the passage of time for him, the rest of Lucy's life, after that one year that he was kind of haunting her, would have just been a blink of an eye for him. Like, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered or meant anything. So he was, he was kind of waiting for her, and, and I think she was sort of waiting for him. And so when that happened, they were just, they were just there for each other. It was a very, very beautiful ending as they leave into the fog. And the music in that last scene is so, so good. I don't know this for a fact. Like, I'm going off of this, uh, and I didn't really read this anyplace else, but this page that has all this information about the ghost in Mrs. Muir and the music by Bernard Herrmann says that it's uh, this was his favorite film score. Oh, and okay. It's it's the it's the only one where he uses the, those Liet motifs because he felt like that was something that just wasn't interesting to him. And I I did notice in other movies like in North by Northwest, there's not really a, a motif for like different characters. There's there's music that goes with different parts of the film that really support those parts of the film, but they don't necessarily like show up when a main character appears. I I noticed that with uh, the fourth of the films that we're going to be doing, Journey to the Center of the Earth, there's music around the scenes more than around the uh, characters. Yeah, and so apparently he felt like this was his best or his favorite. I don't know if best or favorite are the same thing, but his favorite musical score. Yeah, I can see why. This, this whole movie is just really engaging and and charming and fun to watch and sad and melancholy and dramatic in some parts and it's just uh yeah i really enjoyed watching it and the and i enjoyed listening to the music in a lot more detail the second time that i watched it so uh on our ratings for this i i came up with two different ones i give it a 10 for the music and the cinematography if if we had a higher rating number, I would give it to this film for the music, and then the story and and the the drama and the screenplay, I would give it an eight. So, I guess my overall score would be a nine. My overall rating. Yeah, I kind of had the same feeling about it. Like I love the the cinematography. I love the set design, the costuming, the the music was amazing and and if you have apple music and it may be it may be on spotify i'm not sure 
but the the soundtrack is available and you can go out and listen to it oh i didn't know that okay i'll put a link to this website so you can you can read about the different motifs as you're listening to it and maybe even as you're watching it so i think overall i'll I'll go with a nine as well there's so it's great to, to watch something like this because it's it's kind of a fantasy film in a way but it's so well done i loved it do you know what? It, it kind of reminds me of that movie Ghost with Whoopi Goldberg. Yes, and, yes. And, Patrick um, Swayze. Patrick Swayze. That's and it I does. And, I, and it's I don't know. It's not. It doesn't have the same story, but it just the themes and sort of the way that I felt when I was watching it. I think were pretty similar. For our next podcast, number one twenty-five, I believe we're going to do Garden of Evil from nineteen fifty-four. I, I, that's a great movie title. That's a really good movie it title. It is. <laughs> and it's got some top flight uh, action and actors. Gary Cooper, Susan Hayward, and Richard Widmark in the leads. And again, the music of Bernard, Bernard Herrmann. Yes. And it'll be quite a surprise, the difference in the in the music between that film and this one. And then after that, it's The Wrong Man which I don't know much about, but you had said it's kind of somewhat based on a real event or a real story. It is. It's, it's an actual, and the names of the people in the film are actually the people, names of the people that were involved. It's uh, Henry Fonda and Vera Miles, and he plays a musician who's wrongly accused of robbery. Yeah, and, and, cool. and, and the music in that is, again, different. Yeah, that's going to be cool. I, I can't wait to get to the end of this four-film series and then compare the different styles of music. Um, and so the last one is a, a really different, which is Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I can, I can in my head right now, play the music to that movie. I can hear it playing in my head because I've watched that movie so many times. <clears throat> well, and it has Pat Boone in it, who does a little singing himself. Pat Boone and, and the Swedish uh, sort of navigator that they have. I don't know his name, but I really like his character. I'll have to look it up. And Arlene Dahl, she she does a great job. Another strong female character, similar to this movie. She was married to Fernando Lamas. Aha. And as we all know, it is better to look good than feel good. Well, <laughs> and we should be careful not to uh, just say that she was his wife i mean she had a huge career and on her own and was oh a, yes. was an excellent talent so we could say that fernando lamas was was married to her how about that i like that better <laughs> there's one other film that we aren't reviewing that i would recommend to listeners that has bernard uh, herman music in it it's uh, montgomery clift in i confess from 1953 i think it is and uh the music in that is again very different and supportive of the of the film but you know he did 52 films we could do we've only touched on maybe 10 yeah we we're not going to be able to watch all those but i think we'll talk more about his background and life in the next podcast we've touched a little bit on that and kind of spent a lot of time uh today talking about some of the character characters and and actors in this film but we've definitely touched on the music and how important the music was to carry forward the the story and the and the emotional tone of of this movie so that's uh the ghost and mrs muir and it's great to be back from vacation i can't wait to uh watch the next movie and and i I guess we're gonna see you in person next week too huh dad that's right i'll see you on tuesday
Yep, so this is Matt Johnson coming to you from what's turning into a fall kind of a day here in North Bend. And Bob Johnson from Los Angeles wishing you all happy movie watching. able to watch some of the movies that you loaded on your uh, phone on the trip over and back you were, uh, I you watched were a couple watch. but yeah I didn't really I didn't really watch as many I didn't watch any of my Zatoichi movies I was kind of bummed about that but the reason is that they had so many good new movies on the on the in-flight system that I watched a bunch of new movies wow oh yeah and yeah. then and the screen is right in the right in the seat right in the back of the seat yeah, so that so was that's a little easy. bit easier. Well, um, since yeah, it was it was a great trip. I'm really really happy we went. I'm oh still trying to process everything. It's like a lot to come back to. Um, I figure you probably have one or two more blog, uh, blogs to do before you're done with that. Yeah, I got one more to kind of for the last day, and then I was going to do one kind of wrap up of mm-hmm. my thoughts. So those were the one best of, thing you could have done. Yeah, I'm glad I did that. But I think the one thing I noticed the most was just how fewer numbers of people there are here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're spread out more. Yeah, it's crazy because there's so many people in such a smaller area in like Saigon or Tokyo or Osaka. Oh, yeah. And and I, I was told years ago that in Japan, about 20% of the islands is inhabited because there's so mountain, so many mountains. So they're really crammed into a very limited space. Yeah, and they all, I think, I don't know if I told you, I told somebody that like the trip from Tokyo to Osaka, you, you, you never really felt like you left the city. It was just so built up the whole entire way. And it was, a, it was like a three-hour train ride. 
Yeah, you you mentioned that to me. I don't know if that was on a blog or on a text or whatever, but uh, oh yeah, you did. I did yeah. know that you. It was like millions and millions of people compressed together. Oh, I think I did put that in the blog. Yeah, because yeah. there's like 15 million people in Tokyo and 19 million in Osaka. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, it's Jeez. it's bad enough around here. There's 17 million people between Santa Barbara and Oceanside, and that doesn't count San Diego. So. It's but it's still there's a lot more landmass to spread out in. Yeah, it's still more spread out. Yeah, you know, but yeah, that's still a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people, and they're all on the highway when I go out. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. I, but I, you I, know, but that, but but the contrast between that and North Bend, where there's five thousand people, man, <laughs> it's yeah, it's frightening. It's just like wow, I really feel like I live out in the country now. It it really shifted my perspective on things, honestly. Oh. Yeah, you. That's have... what's so great about travel, and I'm so glad that the kids went because they're at the age where it will have that impact on them. I think forever. Yeah, for absolutely forever. I totaled up how many days we traveled, Nancy and I, since January first. We've traveled actually on the, in the air or in a car, a rental car, forty eight days. Oh man! Yeah, wow, you guys have you actually? Yeah, you've been traveling a lot. Eighteen percent of the year we've been on the road. And it's only September. You still have <laughs> yeah, a few more trips, probably. Uh, we were going to go to South Dakota in October, but we've decided to put that on hold. Nancy's never been to a lot of these places like the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore. But uh, well, gonna, if you do go to Mount wait. Rushmore, you need to you need to play some Bernard Herman music in your headphones. I know. I know. As you're driving up. Uh-huh. <laughs> You mean you wouldn't want me to do the Carpenters? Oh God! <laughs> Jeez. I, yeah, I can't listen to the Carpenters without thinking of like being on a road trip. Five hundred miles of, we've only just begun. Oh <laughs> uh, well, really, yeah, you really, you really like ingrained that music in my head for road trips, <laughs> and, and not in, and not in a good way. Not in a good way. No. 